All right, my friends, welcome back to another edition of the Build Show podcast. That's right. This is my weekly chance to get together with you guys on an audio version. And some of you may be watching the video version as well. Uh, but this is where I get to, to really dive in deep, where we can really go into the nitty gritty and minutia that I can't always get onto uh, when I'm filming a YouTube video. So with that being said, I've got a special guest with me today, an old friend, uh, an architect, uh, a really uh, incredible uh, dad, an incredible father, uh, an incredible dog owner, and, uh, <laughs> and also an incredible architect. Uh, we're going to be talking today with my friend Steve Basic, based out of Boston, uh, Massachusetts. And you probably know Steve as an OG member of the Build Show Network. Uh, when we launched our website about a year and a half ago, and I was thinking about who I wanted to shoot videos uh, along with me to publish on a weekly basis and teach um, really good principles how to build a great house, one of the very first people I thought of was Steve Basic. And in fact, he's the only... Uh, architect, designer, uh, basically the only non-contractor or tradesman uh, shooting videos. So with that being said, today's Build Show podcast from the Rockwell Studios here in Austin, Texas with my buddy Steve Basic. Let's get going. Steve, how's it going today, brother? Hey, man. Thank you for having me, man. So good. What to, a treat. So good to have you now, Steve. Um, you have your own podcast that you guys are publishing pretty regularly called the unbuild it podcast, but I appreciate you taking time from your busy schedule between architecture and shooting videos on build show network and recording your podcast to be on my podcast. Uh, yeah. because this is a topic I've been thinking about a lot that I think really deserves um, some attention from our audience. And that's thinking about this topic, which is how do we design from the start a good house, an efficient house, a durable house, a house that's going to be really well built and long lasting. And you are the man to, uh, to interview. And so my hope is guys listening to this, um, this is going to be a conversation with Steve and I, I have a sense that you are probably going to learn something because even though I've been building for 26, 27 years now, every time I talk to Steve, I learn something. So that being said, Steve, uh, this topic of starting right, um, let me set the scene for you. As a builder, I often get uh, plans in various stages of completion, sometimes fully baked, fully finished plans, that I go, oh goodness, now how do I build this in a way that's uh, gonna keep these clients out of trouble? Uh, whether that's water management, whether that's energy efficiency, whether that's uh, durability or comfort, I often get plans that I would say are not necessarily well thought out. And I, as a builder, have to kind of put all the pieces of the puzzle together to build it to the best of my abilities to keep my clients out of trouble, to, to selfishly keep myself out of trouble and not have callbacks and meet expectations. Um, where do you want to start on this topic, Steve? Yeah, I mean, let's just start right, I mean, literally from the beginning. It's, you know, before you even say hire an architect or a builder, you know, I, I tell people a, a house is thousands of decisions. Some of them are assumed decisions, I get it, but everything has to be planned out, right? Everything. And the question is that, that I ask homeowners in, is, who do you want to do that planning? 
right? So what, one of my rules is, is I never set out a, send a draw, set of drawings out of my office that doesn't have at least one solution to solving for pretty much everything. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, mechanical systems, water heater, durability, water management, all of that stuff, we have at least an approach. And that approach is certainly up for scrutiny because like you, a lot of what I learned is, you know, I, I learned a lot about concrete and foundations by going out and hanging out with foundation guys on the site and asking them questions totally. as well as asking them things like, is there, was there anything that you would have liked to have seen on my drawings that wasn't there? That could be a little bit more help to you, make your job easier, make it more informative. But you know, everybody just thinks, oh, well, we can worry about that later. And it's the worry about that later that gets you into a whole lot of trouble um, really quick. I'm smirking um, because I've been there and done that many, many, many times over my career. Yeah. So two things come to mind. An old builder that I, I've done tons of work with, he's been in the business 35 years, and his motto is he'll never start a project until he's prepared to finish it. Hmm. which I think is very telling, right? So you, you'll you have to you pick out everything with him before he puts a shovel in the ground. That's really smart. Um, and, and things can change, certainly, and migrate here or there. But, you know, I, I always use the analogy. It's real easy. You know, imagine buying a car and, you know, you go to the lot and the car is there, but the battery is sitting in the passenger seat. They didn't and think say, about hey, where the battery went. Yeah, it's like, hey, what the hell's with this battery? And the guy comes out and says, oh, we just figured we'd worry about that later. And it's like, okay, now we got to figure out where the battery goes, how to support it, where to get wires, how to attach those wires. Well, that's exactly the same pressures we put on a builder. And, you know, I I think, you know, part of it is that it's it's not necessarily the, it's not the builder's fault either. Because I personally, I think builders should pressure architects to make mm. these kinds of decisions. It, it's, and the funny thing is, Matt, I get phone calls all the time from builder friends that are working on other projects. Mm-hmm. Hey, Steve, what kind of water heater should I use? Can I send you the plans? Where do you think this water heater should go? Or where do you think this ductwork should go? And it's like... Shouldn't well, the architect have thought Yeah, shouldn't that? the architect that just charged six figures have figured that out maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's very discouraging to, and part of it is, I don't think the profession is, is as educated as it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And some builders either. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's, you know, what, one of my baseline premises to the building industry is very few of us know the right questions to ask about a situation. For sure. So, and, and it's tough. It's, it's very tough. I had, a, I had a, one of my best friends was a builder out in the Berkshires and he would get drawings from an architect. I'd go up there. He'd say, Hey, can you come by and we'll go through these drawings and go through the details. And so we'd circle stuff, mark it all up. And it's like, just send these back to the architect. Tell me you want a detail on this. His answer was, well, I can't do that. And I'm like, what do you mean you can't do that? Well, if I, if I harass them, they're not going to send me the work. Hmm. So it's, that's kind of a discouraging position to be in for a builder. Like yeah. you're left to figure it out and it's almost like blackmail. That's interesting. 
You know, I would I would uh, say to that what I have done over the years to uh, to kind of counteract that, and and for many many years I've called myself an architects builder, where we're very uh, intent on working with architects, and we want to make the process easy, uh, and we want to be referred by those architects. Uh, one of the things that I've done is I've when I first met with clients and we first start talking about budget and what it's going to look like and which architect should I choose. I'm talking to them about how they need to also get these other folks on board besides the architect, for instance, the structural engineer. And for me, that also means a mechanical engineer. And oftentimes my mechanical engineer is also doing a plumbing uh, design as well. I typically use positive energy here in Austin, Texas, but there's a bunch of others uh, Great guys. out there as well. Uh, you know, I know uh, Energy Vanguard and I've referred business to him as well out of Atlanta. Uh, think little uh, out of uh, where's he based out of uh, Virginia there's a bunch of mechanical designers out there that focus on residential and we want to train clients early that they they should indeed pay for that so that me as the builder the HVAC uh, subcontractor and the architect all understand what's happening with the with the HVAC system and how we're going to integrate it with the building because it makes a giant difference between figuring that ahead of time and to your point, showing up with a bunch of flex duct in a truck and going, all right, where should we put this HVAC system today on this house I'm about to install? Right. Let's, um, and it, I'm sorry, go well, ahead. I, no, I was just going to say, and I think, you know, part of it too is, you know, homeowners need to look at it as an investment, not a cost. That's right. Right. It's like it, it, it baffles me. Oh, we're, I want to build a six six thousand square foot, you know, it, I don't know, ten million dollar house, modern, and I got to hire a mechanical engineer. Well, yeah. Yeah, you really need to. You definitely Cause, should. Because <laughs> you're the kind of person that's probably going <laughs> to scrutinize over a two degree temperature change when you walk from this room to that room. That's right. And you're gonna care about it. And your expectations and are way higher than some other clients probably based exactly. on this style of architecture. Let's and, uh, and let's put that part on pause because we're, we're going a little further down the path first. Let's back up a minute. And uh, let's talk about when you first start a project and start thinking about the design. Let's say you've got either a raw piece of property or a property with a teardown uh, and let's say this isn't a, uh, you know, city 40 foot wide lot. This is something that's a little more substantial. How do you think about placement of the house, orientation of house, uh, and all those kinds of decisions that get made uh, in what is often referred to as the schematic design phase? Yeah, so it's interesting because when I, when I start a project, I actually give my homeowners or my clients homework. So I have what I call the homework email that I fire off to them. And the homework email is writing a narrative, um, getting at least five exterior pictures, five interior pictures, jotting down a quick program, um, and then highlighting a list of needs, wants, and desires. Needs being things that it doesn't make sense to do this project if I don't get those. Hmm. And the wants being kind of next level if I can get some of these, that's great. And then the desires are, hey, these are some luxuries. If they slide into the project, no problem, then let's do it. If they don't fit this project, then let's not do it. I bet that's but, telling to get that list back. Yeah, well, it does two It does two things that are really great. One, 
it makes homeowners think about it. And most of the homeowners always come back and say, you know what, this really made me think in ways that I've never thought before, Hmm. because we all live in houses, but we don't really think about what we value, what we like in the house, what we don't like in the house. And, and I use that word value. You know, when, when you walk, I was, I was at a job site this morning, um, just before this, and I was walking it with a client and, you know, when you're walking the job site, it's, it's not necessarily what I see at the job site. It's to the homeowner. What do you value about this? Right. Mm-hmm. Do you value the view to the pond, the view to the mountains? And, and where do you value that view from? Right. Like, do you want your family room and living room to face those mountains? Do you want the back deck and pavilion to kind of screen and porch to face that? Like, how do you, and that's where that narrative is. When I tell them to write the narrative, I said, don't, don't come back with, I want a family room 20 foot by 20 foot. Cause my sister has one 18 by 18 and I want mine a little bigger, <laughs> you know, cause you, I get that crap too. But, but I really, I really want to understand, like, I want a family room that, you know, we don't even put a TV in it. Our family's about playing board games and reading and this and that. And then you have the kind of antithesis of that. You have, hey, we want an 80 inch flat screen TV. We, you know, we have Super Bowl parties. We Mm -hmm. have, it's, you know, 20, 30 people in our family room all the time. Well, those are two different family rooms. Yeah. And, and, and in two different houses. And so we're trying to place that value. And, and that word value comes down to, you know, it's, it's the house overall, but, but say this property's facing the ocean, which we have a couple projects like that. Now, obviously some of the main rooms are going to face the ocean, but maybe you want to spread out the house in a long rectangular fashion. So you can maximize the amount of rooms that see the ocean. That's really smart. Right. And then, and then you take that value system and you break it down into each of the rooms. So in the living room, for example, we're always tasked, tasked with, well, I want to see the ocean. I want to see my 80 inch TV and I want to see the fireplace. <laughs> you can't see all three in the same view. Yeah. Right. So where, where do we put that and how do we place that value on this stuff? That's so interesting. So then Steve, you get that homework back that often, people call the program, but it's really more than that. I'm curious to know, uh, and I think this does come back to this topic, which is really efficient design and designing for efficiency to start with. I'm curious to know how you've um, helped clients build smaller in the past. You know, one of the things that I always come up with is, you know, someone says I have a X budget, whether it's, you know, let's just call it a million dollars. I have a million dollar budget to build a house. And I want to build, you know, 5,000 square feet. Well, if your budget's a million dollars and you build a 3,000 square foot house, we have a lot better chance of building you an excellent, well-built house that you're going to be very happy with. It's going to be really durable. If we spread that same budget over a bigger and bigger property, there's going to be less, uh, there's going to be less character. There's going to be less uh, of kind of everything in that house. Do you, number yeah. one, do you feel the same way uh, about building smaller? And number two, what are some things you've done, if in fact you have, to help people think about that? Yeah, so there are a couple of things. I, I totally agree. And our culture is set up that, you know, even when you design, if I designed a house 1,500 square foot and people love it, 
there's going to be a time where they say, hey, Steve, I, I know we said we wanted 1,500 feet, but do you think we could squeeze like a small office in here? And there's always this upper pressure to supersize, right? Mm -hmm. Like to make it 10% bigger. And of course they say it like this shouldn't add any more to the budget, right? <laughs> it's it's pretty interesting that, you know, they, they go down that road. But Do you think I'm we could add a vaulted ceilings and this super detailed office study at the same budget? Yeah. No, probably not. Probably not. And it's... It, you know, I'm constantly being that pain in the ass of saying, you know, nothing we decided today was in favor of the budget. Mm, and, smart. you know, these decisions were, were totally pushing, pushing on it. And one of the things I tell clients is, is, you know, I've been doing this for quite a long time. So I've kind of established my own little rules and I have Steve's 90% rule. It's like make decisions based on what you do 90% of the time. Hmm. Right. So I, like I, I just had a, I had a client. Give me an that, example. Like, well, I had a client that said, "Hey, do you think we can make the entryway wider and put in double doors?" And I was like, "Okay, what's driving this?" Well, we just thought we would want like a really big Christmas tree every year, and I was like, "Okay, so we're going to modify this whole design so you can get a bigger Christmas tree in, <laughs> one, in, in the house one day of the year." To put a Christmas tree in the front door. Right. Or, or like, can we put it a guest, you know, the guest suite is always one. Like, can we put a guest suite? Okay. How often do you have guests? Mm -hmm. And and some are legitimate. Oh, my mother comes and visits us from Mexico for three months out of the year. Okay. That's good. Yep. But the people that sit there and say, well, you know, occasionally maybe a week or two out of the year, we have a guest. Okay. Well, maybe you can just kick your daughter, Sarah, out of her room for that week. Mm -hmm. And, and then we can put that extra $20,000 into that cool ceiling in the family room that you can appreciate 90% of the time. Yeah. Or if that, of or if that guest room has a bathroom, it's double or triple that amount, right? When they have exactly. their own dedicated bath, I think it's so expensive to have that guest room. Exactly. And people just, there's always, always, always upward pressure. Mm -hmm. Always. 100%. It is, it's constant. hundred percent. So we're, we're always, always fighting that. And I feel bad for builders because they look at you guys like, yeah, that, that shouldn't cost any more, right? It's, that's a constant battle. Here's a little personal example, Stephen. You're familiar with this, so I'm not telling you something you don't already know, but uh, for the last, I don't know, 50, almost 15 years, I've lived in 2,200 square feet. Uh, and I've got four kids and a fairly large Labrador uh, living in 2,200 square feet. We don't have a guest room. We almost never have guests. And if they do, they get a hotel room uh, or they stay with a neighbor because I'm friends with the neighbors. Uh, and so when I was building my new house, uh, which Steve helped me on, uh, did uh, the architecture with another Austin architect uh, friend of mine, uh, several conversations about size came up. And really, I had a few requirements, like I wanted my daughter to have her own bedroom and her own bath, but I've got three boys and almost everyone says, oh, you're building a new house so that all of your kids can have a bedroom. No, why, why do my kids need their own bedroom? They're going to have a roommate the rest of their entire adult lives. Why should get, they get their own bedroom as a teenager? And not only that, what good things happen in a teenage boy's room alone? Uh, nothing. Nothing good can happen. So having three boys in one bedroom made total sense to me. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, Steve and I designed the, so it's a four bedroom house basically that I built. But what we did was we made one uh, section of the house, these two bedrooms, into one kind of giant bedroom so that three boys could share a bigger space. But we also designed it in a way that it'd be really easy for me once my kids are out of the house, I'm hoping to live in this house for a long time, to change it back into a four bedroom. But believe it or not, I'm, I'm building a 2,800 square foot house that's a three bedroom. And Steve helped me think about how to use those spaces and utilize those spaces really wisely. So for instance, my home office is a pocket office underneath the stairs. I don't home office very often, and when I do, it's maybe a Zoom call or it's uh, you know something to do uh, where I'm prepping for the next day. Super easy for me to do in a tiny little office space underneath the stairs. I didn't need a whole other room for that. Uh, well, and so that, that's been huge for me. I, I think we get sometimes caught up in the idea of custom home means custom everything. Mm-hmm. Like, so we, we get into two things. One, you're going to laugh at this. I was working with a, a, a husband and wife client and they had three kids. And she said, I want each of the kids to have their bedroom with their own bathroom and walk-in closet. And I was like, okay, that's going to get pricey. And she goes, I, I know it, but all they do is fight in the morning in, in the bathroom and I can't deal with it anymore. <laughs> and so that's when I blurted out a little discipline would save you a lot of money, which <laughs> She didn't quite appreciate that comment, but you, you know me oh, enough that I'm brutally honest. I love Steve. Awesome. You know, so, but, but, but the reality is, is that, you know, we, we, we still, we want to make things a little bigger and we want to make all this stuff to be very specific. Like I get the thing all the time. Like you'll, you'll have this little nook in a hallway upstairs and it's like, we kind of end up with this leftover space and the, the wife will be like, oh we'll, we'll just turn it into a little homework nook and i'm like homework nook i said okay one of two things one your kid is never going to go up there to do homework no they're going to want to sit at the kitchen island they're going to expect you to make them a sandwich deliver them food mm-hmm. chat with you all of that stuff two if you do have a son or daughter that is willing to go upstairs all the way down the hall and hang out in that nook you have to question why are they doing that? Yep. yep. Because totally. they probably should be at the island. Totally. Begging for it. So I I kind of insist, you know, my 90% rule, but when you're designing, I think designing for flexibility is far more important mm-hmm. than designing for specificity, if that's even a word. But specificity? Specificity? Specific, it, being very specific. Being I mean, specific. I I had one guy, we built, we did a built-in for his bedroom. He was talking about, he drew the pencil tray. Like, this is where my ink pens go. This is where my pencils go. I go, dude, <laughs> you, you're going to like, you, you're suicide 411. Call them. Oh because so you, you, specific on how he's going to use exactly. that space. That's amazing. And, and times are changing. Times are changing, right? I yep. mean, think about think about the way we get music. In my lifetime, I'm on like the sixth mode of d- music delivery, right? Yeah, and, I guess that's right. And and phones and all of this stuff. So things change. Mm-hmm. So you really want to be flexible, not build in all these specific systems that in three years they're superseded by the next best thing. That's really smart. That's really smart. Let me switch gears uh, and ask you about a very important topic that that uh, relates to efficiency in particular, and that's windows. 
I would love to get your take on uh, Windows placement, size, and efficiency. That's kind of a big, big, yep. big order there. <laughs> yep. So that starts with it's it's really interesting because when I was in college, I actually wrote like a I don't know probably a ten page paper on the question that was posed by our, uh, our architectural theory teacher. And the question was, what came first, the window or the wall? Hmm. And basically what he was asking was, did the placement of the room on that side of the house come first or did the windows and the reason for the view come first? So what's, what's driving that decision there? Mm -hmm. And, um, and that gets back to, you know, placing value on the house. It's, you know, as, as much as we like to think things are compartmentalized, the designing and building a house is a huge, um, just systematic process that's intertwined. Yeah, for sure. Right. And, and so when it comes to windows, I mean, choosing the right window, um, the, and, and I say choosing the right window from a performance standpoint, yep. standpoint, is always important because yeah. I don't care what kind of house you build. The window is always the worst part of the wall. That's right. Yeah. Our, it, our walls it, it are maybe is, our 21 uh, exactly. at a minimum. Some of the walls that I've seen you build uh, over the years, Steve, are twice that uh, R value. And if you use a standard uh, kind of American double pane window, it's roughly R3. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that window is terribly inefficient. But yet if you build a big box with no windows, that would also be terrible because your clients would want to kill themselves because they have no window to the outside. You're living in prison. So there's that balance between how do I reduce my efficiency of my house with windows, but also have uh, a house that has a certain quality to it, a brightness, a light feeling, uh, where the windows are picture framing something in particular. Uh, I certainly don't live on a uh, ocean view, but I wish I did. Um, but we were thoughtful in my window placement, Steve, when we were talking through my house. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, the window type certainly is going to play a role there, too, because some window manufacturers, you know, it, as you know, I use the European windows a lot. Mm -hmm. They'll they'll build me a 16 foot wide, six, seven foot tall window. And, 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 and not only that, it. it's triple glaze. So it's R six or seven, let's say, uh, instead of R three which is yeah. twice as efficient as most other products that are being put I mean, put if it's in. fixed, it's probably more like 7.6, I think, is as high as we can get that, is that right? up to. Goodness yeah. gracious. But, 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 it, but that's where that narrative comes in too, right? And the beauty of that narrative is that, uh, I know, they're, the background are killing me. Is that Duck who's, uh, who's that's, crying? That's Duck and Goose, and they're both, you know, I locked them up, and they're behind a door, and they're all the way on the other side of the house. Steve has very large and uh, very character-filled dogs, brutal. FYI. They're brutal. They're brutal. They're howling for me. I spent all morning with them. I thought they'd be fully weared out. <laughs> you can bring them over even... to the podcast. We'd love to yeah. have them uh, make a cameo, oh, Steve. It'd be totally fine. Man. man. But, uh, but that's where that homework comes in yeah. because the, the beauty of the homework that I've learned is it nails the homeowners down to some value. Mm. So now if I put a big window in there and they say, oh, well, why did you put a big window there? Well, let's look here. You said you wanted a family room with a lot of light and a view to the pond. What's better than a nice 13-foot window on that wall? Beautiful. Right? Beautiful. So, so it, it, it ties back 
you know, to, to their value system and, and such and that homework. And that, that homework has really become an extremely valuable tool of mine because mm -hmm. it really makes the homeowner kind of sign up for the project. Yeah. So let me ask you a question on that, then a follow up. You know, we, you briefly mentioned, oh, I use a lot of uh, European windows. And in fact, I did a project with EAS, European Architectural Supply, which is based in Boston, where they got me European made windows and supplied them right here to Austin, Texas. And it's my first project with them uh, <laughs> using a super uh, bomber, very thick and durable product. Uh, and that client didn't have a whole lot of uh, like, oh, okay, great. You know, whatever, they're windows, right? I can see through them. They didn't have any like, oh, I got to use Marvin or I got to use, you know, some brand name. When you're yeah. talking to clients and or builders at the start of design, do you just assume that it's going to be this particular window that you have in mind for the project? Or is that a discussion point for you? Um, I think at, at the beginning, part of the part of the homework. So people do the homework. They give me the homework. I go through it, and then we have a meeting to review the homework because inevitably I drum up some questions in that. And so when I drum up those questions, even if they didn't write about durability, water management, energy efficiency, I drum up those questions and say, okay, you know, I'm just trying to fill you out here. Like, how much value do you place on energy efficiency? How mm -hmm. much value do you place on health and comfort, on maintenance to the house, durability? I mean, durability and water management, everybody wants that. They just assume they're getting 100% yep. of that. Um, but when it comes to, like, health, comfort, and especially energy efficiency, getting a feel for that of what, you know, what do you want? I mean, I, I had one client. I thought they were a perfect candidate for the European windows. And he was totally against the window hmm. swinging in and uh, wanted a casement going out. So we had to move to, we, we just moved to Sierra Pacific developed a beautiful triple glaze window for us at R five. I'll be honest. I, uh, I forgot about the in swing myself and, uh, I specified a European window at my, uh, at my kitchen sink. I actually have a fenster window. Uh, which is an incredible product, and I've got takes uh, out that gooseneck faucet every time you open it, doesn't it? Yep. And my project <laughs> manager, uh, Luke, who's helping me build the house, uh, one day said, uh, "This window swings in, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, you know, it's an in swing." He's like, "What about this faucet that's going right here?" I was like, "Hmm, hadn't thought about that." <laughs> yep. Thank God it's a tilt turn, so I at least get the the tilt portion the tilt so I can vent if I want, but honestly, uh, Steve, I can, I can count on one hand the number of times over the years that I've thrown open the windows to bring that fresh Texas air in. Uh, it's either pollen season and literally you can see the cedar trees. It looks like they're on fire because the wind blows on this, this kind of reddish or this kind of uh, greenish pollen blows off, uh, and gets everybody in cedar fever around town. Or it's 100 degrees outside or in the spring and the fall when everyone thinks, oh, I'm going to throw open my windows. Well, it's only 75 degrees out, but it's 80% humidity. So yeah, it's raining outside well, without it raining. Yeah, there's just there's almost never a time where I'm like, oh, it'd be great to throw my windows open. Yes, like twice a year. So for me to have that, in this case, basically non-operable kitchen window now. It doesn't matter. It's really no big deal to me. I, it's not a huge loss, but it was one of those eye-opening moments like, oh, I hadn't really thought about this. Uh, 
and also you have to think about what you're going to do for window coverings when you've got a, an in-swing window. That's a huge challenge. Um, one of the things that I've been doing um, is doing kind of, they're, they're very informal, but kind of post-construction interviews. Hmm. Um, you That's know, giving somebody a call like a year later and just saying, hey, how's things going and, and this and that? Is there anything, you know, maybe you should we should have done differently and stuff. Um, and it's funny because a lot of them do say we should have made more windows, fixed windows because mm -hmm. we don't open them. <laughs> That's funny. And um, even the people that were adamant about, oh, you, Steve, you don't understand us. We love to have the windows open. And I said, no, you don't understand what it means to live in a good building. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. and, and not only that, do, there's there's a huge cost savings by going fixed, Steve. Uh, mm -hmm. When you and I looked at my window package at my house, I, I was one of those people who knew I wasn't going to open my windows. So I all I did was put egress windows as operables. So every bedroom has pretty much just one window that vents and operates, and you can get out in a fire. Everything else is fixed. And then the other added benefit of that that I think you've taught me over the years is, uh, you know, operable windows naturally are more air leaky, no matter how great or expensive the windows are. So if you go fixed, you're naturally not going to have that air leakage that's happening anytime the wind blows or anytime there's a pressure differential between the inside and the out. Yeah. And that was, that was a big deal for me was trying to get to that passive house level of air tightness at my personal house. And I was worried about it. And so I went as fixed as, as possible as I could in the house. And I'm so thankful I did. Yeah. It's most people, and they, they say they sleep better in the house. It's uh, you know, and ventilation is another one of those things that's kind of critical because now that we're building these, tighter houses and putting in fixed windows and mm -hmm. tightening them up, we have to ensure that the quality of air inside is better than what they're used to experiencing. Totally. Um, and most of my clients, they say, I, I, I have one client. It's really interesting because they have two houses and they live in the house that I designed for them about six months out of the year. And she always rants and raves about, I, I hate living in the other house in Virginia because I don't sleep well there. I toss and turn. I come to this house and I sleep like a baby. That's awesome. She goes, it is crazy how much different it is. That feels in this good, house. doesn't it? That yeah. feels really good. So it's uh you know the the other thing about that homework, which which just comes to mind is when you do that homework, you get, you know, a, as builders and, and architects, a, a lot of our job, I mean, we build houses, we design them. But we also marriage counsel, um, we financial financial consultants, um, you know, uh, therapists, psychologists, um, all of this stuff. Apparently, so, we do child rearing advice as well, too. Steve. Yeah. Oh, I got a, I got like the perfect child. Me and Jim were at a meeting, and this girl, little girl, she was probably like four or five. Daisy. Jim's a builder, by the way. Yeah. And, and so we're at this meeting with the husband and wife and Daisy and Daisy's got to interfere with the meeting. Like the minute we sit down, Daisy's become, I need this. I need that. I need this. So the mom puts her in a high chair and gives her a popsicle. It wasn't, but maybe five seconds after her handing the popsicle, the popsicle went across Jim and Mai's face and bounced off the wall. So at that point, if it were me, my kid would have been like standing in a locked closet somewhere oh, down the hallway. But the mom gets up and she says, oh, I'm sorry, Daisy. I guess you didn't want a popsicle. 
And I was like, Whoa. oh, my God. So, you you know, you've, you, you right there, you, you get to understand who's in charge in that house. Uh, the but, kid is in charge. But, but doing that homework, it also helps you understand, like, are these people really into this? Mm-hmm. Right? Or are they not? Because occasionally, like, the wife is sending the homework really fast and the husband's dragging. Oh, I know I owe you. I know I owe you. And then they send a one pager mm-hmm. and you're sitting there going, okay, that's a red flag because you're not really into it. Is this house really going to get built? Yeah. Is this really going to get built mm-hmm. or are you just going to yes this to death? I mean, dude, you're spending a million and a half dollars here. Do you, maybe you want to consider. And that, and then you have the antithesis of that. I had a gentleman last February sent me a hundred and sixty-five page oh my gosh. homework. It took me three and a half hours to go through it. He had articles in there, uh, PowerPoint presentation. How are you ever going to meet his expectations? Is what I'm like, thinking. Man, this guy here, I, I could just turn this into a book and sell it. Um, <laughs> but but doing the homework, it gives you some insight into the people that you're dealing with. For sure. And, and how they're going to approach the design. Because you know nothing about these people. Yeah, they mm-hmm. signed on, but I don't know. Are they nice people? Are they jerks? Are they going to argue all the time? Are they mean and nasty? Or are they thoughtful and grateful? Yep. And you know, how, how do we find that out? It's really hard doing that homework Mm -hmm. is there, there's a a bunch of those little processes that, you know, and when we do the homework review meeting, like does the husband and wife both show up? Do they Mm -hmm. show up happy? How do they approach it? Yep. So you get a really good feel for like how this project is going before you get too deep into it. A hundred percent. Steve, uh, I hate to say it, but we are running long on time. I try to keep my podcast under 45 minutes, and we're, we're coming up on 40. Uh, I think this should be a two-parter, to be honest. Would you be willing to uh, to do willing. a Let's part two again. on this? Because we haven't even touched on insulation mechanicals. Uh, I really wanted to get into the insulated floor details that you taught me that I used at my house, and I'm using another project. So um, with that being said, guys, hang on for a part two or come back next Friday, I should say, for a part two on this. Before we part, though, Steve, tell these guys how they can uh, how they can follow you uh, on Instagram. You're, is it Steve Basic Architect? All Steve one word? And Basic Architect Steve on and Instagram. Basic. Yep. Um, and, and if you're following me, I asked, hey, give my daughter. My daughter follow, works with me. Alexandra. And so she's at Alexandra Basic. She's always putting up good stuff, too. Awesome. Um and, and following in my footsteps. And then uh, tell me about your podcast. How can people uh, look up your podcast? The Unbuild It podcast. It's it's through all the different podcast channels, Spotify, all that, iTunes. But we're also on YouTube. So you get to watch nice. the antics of me going off on Jake and Pete <laughs> and uh, seeing, seeing, seeing my nice Hawaiian shirts and my uh. Jimmy Buffett shirt collection that so I it's have. the unbuild it podcast you and yeah. build b-u-i-l-d it yep. podcast the unbuild it podcast yeah and on also YouTube, it's the unbuild it show but yeah and of course steve's also shooting videos uh once a week uh for buildshownetwork.com which is the website that we started a year and a half ago we launched with uh Gosh, what did we start with, Steve? Uh, you, me, and three others uh, at that yep. time. We had uh, Jake Bruton, who you work with a bunch and uh, and who I look up to greatly and have learned so much from. He's also on your podcast with you. We've got yep. Brent Hull in Fort Worth, an incredible builder that builds 
some really uh, beautiful new houses that look really old and take some really old houses and make them beautiful again. And I know you've worked with Brent and as well. I think you were just up in Fort Worth visiting him not too long yep. ago. Uh, yep. And then we've also got our buddy Wade Paquin. I know you've got a cool project with Wade coming up. we got a cool up. passive house that we're going to be doing with him. I saw him last week, and he was super psyched about that. He's in Rhode Island. Yeah. You, you know one of the things, though, Matt? It's like you you, you always do this, and you don't commend. I, I commend you on, on developing things like the Build Show Network and doing the Build Show because nice, people don't people don't know what questions to ask. Like the, we need to bring this information out to these people. And the, the, the other three guys, Wade, Brent and Jake and you and I, I think one of the strengths and the beauties of the build show network is when I shoot, when I shoot that video, it's probably a video of something that I shot. It, it gets dropped on Friday, but I probably shot that video on Tuesday morning. Mm-hmm. visiting a job mm-hmm. site. That's right. So it's not like this is archived information from 1997 <laughs> that I'm showing you how to insulate a basement. Like these are all real time solutions right. that we're all doing right now. So yeah. if you're looking for that education, you got to go check that stuff out. Yeah. And, and to throw that compliment back on you, uh, Steve, you're the only one I've ever met who can teach with a red Sharpie uh, as well as you can on a job site. Uh, we need to make you the t-shirt for what Steve calls big red, which is his Sharpie. Uh, and Steve is on his videos. If you haven't seen him on build Show Network, uh, oftentimes he'll start in the field and show you a detail. Then he'll say, Hey, let's go back to my desk. He's got an overhead camera. Uh, he's got a big red Sharpie and he can actually show you the details. And so I've heard anecdotally, Steve, from dozens of youngish architects. I don't mean uh, teenagers. I mean, twenties and thirties and even forties architects who say, Matt, thank you so much uh, for introducing me to Steve because his video, your videos are great and all, but Steve shows me my craft in a way that I've never seen it and thought about it before. And, you know, these are architects that maybe are one or two man shows and even more so architects that work at bigger firms and have 20 or 30 architects. And there's no one at that firm who's mentoring them. And yet you're mentoring a whole generation of young architects remotely that you've never met before. And so that is huge, Steve. And not only that, it's all free. Uh, we've never charged anything for people to watch any of your videos or mine on uh, YouTube in the past or on Build Show Network now. Uh, so, uh, you know, big thanks to our supporters over the years, all the great manufacturers we worked with. Uh, and thank you, our listeners and our audience, for sitting through a 15 or a 30 second ad. That's how we pay for this. Uh, and. Uh, I, anecdotally, Steve is making pennies and peanuts for doing this, uh, not real dollars. Uh, maybe someday you and I will be making real dollars, but all this has been mainly because we really care about the industry. And Steve and I are very like-minded and wanting to train that next generation of builders and architects. And for you, it's very, uh, it's very in your face because you've got Alexandra, uh, his uh, daughter, who's in her early 20s, who just graduated not that long ago from architecture school. And then he's got another son who's still in architecture school and probably is going to join. Uh, he's going to join us in a couple of years. Yeah. So yeah. How cool is that, Steve? I mean, that's that's uh, that really speaks volumes to you and your wife and uh, how you've raised your children uh, and the fact that they really want to spend time with you. Uh, and for me with young kids at home, gosh, I would love it if my kids would, would someday go into the business with, uh, with dad. 
Yeah, Anyways, it's, it's such a it's a reinvigorating feeling. It feels like everything I do now has a purpose because there's a legacy that we have to build. So awesome, man. So awesome. Well, guys, that was a longer outro than normal. But Steve, thank you for all your do. Uh, if you're watching this in any format where there's a description below, I'll have a link to all these things that we talked about so you can find Steve. And of course, you can go over to buildshownetwork.com and find him. Guys, if you're not currently a subscriber, hit that subscribe button. This podcast is out every single Friday on all the usual places and on buildshownetwork.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Otherwise, we'll see you next time on the Build Show Podcast. <laughs>